Hello, everybody, and welcome to the HTML All the Things podcast, episode number 45, Marketing and SEO with Chris Daly. I'm your host, Matt Lawrence, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Mike Coran. And I just want to mention one more time, or probably not going to be the last time, but one more time, I'll say anyway, uh, that we do have a Discord community that is uh, doing quite well, a Discord server, and uh, feel free to join us in that today. Uh, I will put the join link in the description. Make sure you join up if you have any questions, concerns, or just want to chat with some uh, cool web devs in a variety of different areas. Python, what's the other one they're using? Django, you know, obviously HTML, Vue CSS, JS, JS yeah, Vue.js, you know, the whole the whole shebang. So if you're interested at all, or even different languages, whatever, come on down. Uh, and we just uh, have some pretty great conversations about that type of stuff. And uh, we share all our work together, so... It's a pretty great uh, little community that has just been started. But anyway, moving right on to the episode here, because we did have a very lengthy uh, and very interesting interview this week, uh, we're going to move on to the weekly pain point. And Mike, please take it away. Yeah, so my weekly pain point this week uh, is slow deployments. So and what I mean by this is I've been doing a lot of rapid deployments lately, um, and with larger companies, like very large companies, you have to go through their, obviously deployment infrastructure so however they handle deployment so it has to go through like a cert certification environment first do do a big cycle there and then go to a production environment so the problem that i've been having is i've sometimes like you go rapidly because you got to fix a bug or you got to introduce a new feature and as soon as you do a cert deployment it's a 24-hour lifespan until the next uh until the next time you can put in a production deployment but if you do it and like couple hours after that deployment, you realize that you have a bug, you have to then, you know, go back and wait another 24 hours and then have to either cancel the, that cert deployment and put in a different production deployment. So it's it's all it's all a big mess with, with, with these deployments. Ideally, obviously, you want to make sure that every deployment you do is perfect. But we know that in a rapid web development environment is just not possible. Um, so like, it's, it's just tough to work with. That's what I've been doing. I understand why they do that. Obviously with larger companies, you have to have some sort of infrastructure. You have to have some, the, the checks and, and stuff and balance is just annoying to deal with. And I really don't have a real good solution for that other than make sure that when you do a deployment, don't have any bugs in it. That's the best advice I can offer. What about you, Matt? Uh, so this week it uh, hasn't necessarily been specifically deployments, but it's definitely been uh, distribution. So we've been working, we're trying to work with uh, another company as well. So we're kind of like, we are kind of like the middleman in this particular deal. And we're trying to go and doing a little bit of back and forth. And it's kind of one of the first times that I've dealt with somebody where I'm instructing them to do some stuff and then they're supposed to do it. And then we're supposed to sort of like, you know, uh, abide by those changes. I don't want to get into, you know, details due to security, but it's just kind of like the first time we've worked in that sort of environment. And so, you know, it's a little bit of, you know, being, being new in that sort of communication scenario, if you will. And it's also a bit of the fact that obviously because there's so many pieces and so many people involved now, customers, us, another company that it's getting a little bit messy and that type of thing. So that's been kind of my, uh, my pain point for sure. But, uh, this week actually is going to be focused on, uh, we're not going to have the traditional segments like we would normally have today. We actually have a special guest and it's a brand new guest actually. So Chris Daly. So Chris Daly, Chris is a, uh, digital marketing entrepreneur that helps businesses succeed online. He has experience with things like UX, which is user experience, uh, SEO, which is search engine optimization and PPC, which is pay per click. 
In 2014, he started Daily Conversion, a conversion optimization agency that helped businesses determine best conversion practices through testing. And then soon thereafter, in 2016, he merged his agency with Disruptive Advertising, where he worked as the VP of Site Testing and Optimization. Most recently, he has actually started a brand new company, which I'll actually let him tell us all about in the interview. Now, we have a bunch of questions for Chris that any freelancer, entrepreneur, or marketing professional should find interesting. So let's jump right into that interview right now. All right, everybody, we have uh, Chris and Mike on the line here, and we're just going to kick it right off here because we have a really big interview, lots and lots of questions, and uh, it's in, in, in an area that we're that Mike and I are not so versed in, so this should be quite interesting to our audience because I'm sure you guys have, uh, have some holes in your marketing knowledge as well. So, segment number one, what's new? Tell us a little bit, little bit about yourself, Chris, and what you've been up to these days. Yeah, thank you guys for having me on the show, first of all. I'm excited to chat with you guys, and I'm always excited to chat with people who even know what A-B testing is or conversion rate optimization is, um, most of the conversations I have with people are um, either people saying, oh, A-B testing, yeah, uh, that's that's what you do on ads, right? Um, you know, and it's like, well, yes, that's definitely one piece of, of figuring out, you know, conversion rates is testing your ads. But um, you know, I spend all of my time focused on, or, or the vast majority of my time looking at websites with companies. And uh, I've been in the digital marketing space now for about 10 years. Um, I started out in the SEO space doing search engine optimization, which I'm sure everybody is familiar with, but for those who aren't, it's, um, you know, getting your website ranked on Google so that you can get traffic to your site. And I spent a few years focusing on kind of the traffic game. So doing SEO, I did a little bit of social media marketing. I did a little bit of uh, Google AdWords. Um, and I ended up, I ended up stumbling upon conversion rate optimization by necessity. Um, we had, I was working in house at a company and we had tripled our organic traffic in like a six month time period, um, which was awesome. And which was something that was fairly easy to do back in the early days of SEO. Uh, not so easy to do now, but, um, you know, so we got tons of traffic to the site, which should be a really, really great thing, except that it turned out not to be. Um, we got all this traffic, but realized after we had spent all of our time getting that traffic that it wasn't converting. Um, and so I didn't want to just throw up my hands and accept defeat. I, I was like, there has to be a way to get these people to convert. Um, but nobody at the company I was at at the time could tell me how we could do that other than getting different people to the site. Uh, and so I took to Google and did some searches and discovered conversion rate optimization that you could run tests and change things on your website and see how people respond. Um, and I, I ran my very first AB test, uh, which was kind of an accident. I had no idea what I was doing. It was just like, let's just try this thing out and see what happens. Uh, but I ran my first test and, and accidentally found a huge winner, um, like a 20% lift in conversion rates. And I was just blown away by that. Um, and I fell in love. And I just from asking the question, why? Like, why did this work? I don't, I didn't know what I was doing. Like, how did I make, how did I create something that converted better? Um, and that question honestly has continued to inspire me for the last, oh, six or seven years. Um, 
And so you guys mentioned that I've been uh, that I've been up to I've been up to some new stuff lately. So I actually recently just created a new company um, called Smart CRO, and the purpose of Smart CRO I have had a lot of companies that have come to work with me over the years, and eventually once you start to see great results um, by doing A/B testing on your site you want to bring it in house. You want to start to build out your own team because it just, there's such a high value to the business from doing it. But the challenge that I've seen businesses have over and over and over again is like, well, who do we hire? And once we hire somebody, like if they're not an expert, if they don't already have a great process, um, how do we build out our own process? And so I've had over the years, I've had a lot of companies that have come to me and said, Hey, so we hired a team and we started running tests and we realized we have no clue what we're doing. <laughs> um, and so the company that I've built, Smart CRO, is, is created to, um, basically what I'm going to be doing is helping businesses build out their own in-house conversion rate optimization programs. So figuring out how do you hire for this? How do you create a strategy that's repeatable, that doesn't um, that doesn't burn out in two months once you run out of ideas. Um, you know, how do you analyze test results and draw conclusions from them? And how to, you know, all these things that are involved with A-B testing, uh, that's basically what I'm going to be helping businesses build out for their own company. So I'm really excited about it. And uh, I'm just, I'm just barely getting my feet wet with that. Yeah, that sounds really awesome. Uh... And like Matt was mentioning, we are <laughs> not the biggest experts in this field uh, in marketing, SEO optimization. We're definitely trying different things. We're definitely getting to the point where we understand some core concepts. But I would say we're definitely not at the point where we can kind of do any sort of consultation on it. Uh, we can do the base stuff, you know, get it set up, make sure that the, end, the search engine optimization is at least indexing. Uh, stuff like that, but we're definitely not there to optimize too, too much. Um, so this is going to be super interesting for us. And I think uh, as we've been talking to a lot of our listeners, they will, will also benefit from this greatly. So again, thanks for coming on, Chris. Uh, I think we're just going to get started right away with some questions and we're going to dive into your favorite topic, I think here. Uh, can you just give your, your own explanation of what A-B testing is and why it's important? Yeah, so... Let me start by answering what A-B testing is not. So a lot of times I'll ask companies, have you ever done A-B testing before? And they'll say, yeah. And so I'll say, well, tell me about it. And they'll go, well, we built a new website and we launched it and we compared our conversion rates um, after we launched to our conversion rates before we launched. So like compared this week's conversion rates to last week's conversion rates and things went up. And so we know that the new site is better. <laughs> um, the problem with that is that it's not an A-B test. Um, it's not an A-B test at all. Um, that's just like if you were if you were a doctor and you were running a clinical study on um, on how to best get rid of headaches, and it's like I told someone to go and drink a bottle of water, and then they came back tomorrow and told me their headache was gone. So it must have been the bottle of water that did it. Um, but there's so many problems with that. It's like, well, maybe your headache was just going to go away anyway. Um, or maybe you, you know, whatever. Maybe there was something else that happened. Maybe it was the jog that you went on last night that got rid of your headache. Or maybe it's because you got a really good night of sleep and the previous night you didn't. You know, there's just all kinds of factors. And same thing with a website. 
um, when you when you make changes on a website and you just launch them to all of your traffic and then you compare tomorrow's conversion rates against today today's, there's all kinds of stuff that can happen. There's so many variables at play. Maybe tomorrow conversion rates are just better than they are today, just because they they are going to be, right? Like, or maybe there's some natural disaster that happens tomorrow and that that you know people want your product or your service a lot more than they did today or a lot less than they did today and so your conversion rate is just going to go down tomorrow no matter what um so what a b testing is it's a it's a way to cancel out all of that noise all of the stuff that just happens on a day-to-day -day basis that influences conversion rates um and so a b testing is is basically you take your website and using a tool there's lots of A-B testing tools out there. Google has a free one called Google Optimize. Um, so using a tool like Google Optimize, you basically clone your website to create a duplicate of one of the pages on your site. So if we say your home page, for example, we have your, your current home page, and then we have the duplicate of your home page. We'll call it variation one. And on this, on this variation, you're going to change something. So let's say I think that I should have a video on my home page. So I've got my existing site, now I have my variation one where I add a video. And then I run them both at the same time. So these A-B testing tools, what they will do is they will split traffic between these two versions. So you have your A and you have your B. They will split traffic between the two during the same time frame, and you'll be able to judge how both of them perform during the same period of time with the same traffic. And so you can say, hey, look, um, my existing site is converting at 5% and my one with the video is converting at 10%. Looks like the video does perform better. Um, and so that's kind of the essence of A-B testing is it's a way to just cancel out all of the all of the noise that can happen when you make changes on your site. Yeah, that's super cool. That's super interesting and, and a very good explanation, actually, because uh, I know in, in development, we obviously do do a b testing and sometimes it's not only for uh seo and marketing and ux purposes um it's sometimes to see what kind of i mean i mean i guess this is ux is to see it, how people use our application so sometimes we don't really care about how many people get to the application but we care about how many people get to the end of a, of yep. a user experience so I, i've been doing quite a bit of a b testing in your exact sense of the word, A-B testing for seeing how easy it is to get to the end of an experience. So you kind of serve out those, serve out those pages to two different groups of people and see which group of people gets to the experience, like the end of the experience fastest and has the best results. So it's co super cool to have it explained that way. Um, and I, I think, I think it's very evident why it's important. Like you can kind of give anyone a very, good breakdown of why this method is better than that method. So like, well, and, and one thing I want to, that I'll add on to what you just said is AB testing is really the only way to determine what people actually want to see on a website. So when you're talking about the user experience of a website, um, it's helpful sometimes for me to like compare it to like physical locations. So like um, Walmart and, and retail stores like, like that, have been testing their store layouts for decades. Um, and what they will do is they'll say, hey, let's take all of our stores in California or whatever, they'll, they'll pick a location. Um, and they'll say, let's take all of our stores there and let's change the layout. So instead of putting, um, you know, instead of putting summer apparel at the front of the store, let's put, um, 
Easter candy at the front of the store and let's see what happens. Let's see if people buy more stuff, they buy less stuff, if it makes any impact whatsoever, right? And it's really easy uh, to tell in those cases, it's like, hey, well, we have a hundred locations where we changed the layout. And we've got a thousand locations where we didn't. Let's compare the data and see what happened. Hey, it turns out that when we put the candy first, people buy more stuff. So then you can start digging in and go like, well, why? Why would they buy more stuff if they see candy first? And, and you can start to create these hypotheses around like, okay, well, maybe it's because they're lower priced. So let's try putting lower priced stuff at the beginning. Maybe it's because it's candy and people love candy. Maybe it's because those are impulse buys. And if you get someone to buy something that's an impulse buy, they're more likely to buy more stuff. Right. And so you can like you can start to create all these different hypotheses that then it gives you lots of stuff to create a strategy around. Um, and so it's a great it's, it's really the only way to really figure out, like you were just describing, what is the best user experience here? What's the best way to get somebody from point A to point Z? I actually have a, a bit of a follow up question, I think, and it, and it kind of comes from my IT background based on what you just said there. So. Uh, so basically, I don't really know how to word this. So it'd be something like, you know how like, your first example had that, had the, uh, like the video on version A and then the no video on the other version or like the two Walmarts to say are like moved around. It, in this case, it's like, how would someone from the back end, so let's say like an IT support guy, specifically for like that video website more so, uh, how would he say, deal with like, I don't know, let's say a web app where it's like YouTube or something and you're going to move that upload button around. So if they have like a call center where the person has to call in and ask, or if like someone, I mean, people don't normally do this, but if they need to ask like where things are in the Walmart, like, Hey, where's this thing? I don't know. Maybe there's an app or something that does that. Where's this thing? How, like, I don't know what challenges, what challenges would there be when, when people are like, Hey, you know, some people will have the upload button in the top, right? Some people are going to have the candy in the back but might have it in like the, the, you know, near the pharmacy, like where, I don't know, do you have any concerns like that? Or do you have any things that pop up from people kind of in that support role that like, are like, Hey, if you're moving stuff around, like how am I supposed to know what version people are using? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So it can create some technical nightmares. <laughs> um, and it's, it's especially apparent when you have sales teams that are talking to people uh, when you're when you're testing things like messaging or your offer, I mean, there's companies that will test like their price point, and it's like you have somebody that calls up and is like, "Hey, I want to buy your product," and it's like you can't ask the dumb question of like, uh, "How much does it say our product costs on the website?" so that I can make sure I charge you the right amount. You know, like you need to know that kind of stuff. And yes, so it yes. is it is it is really important um, to. If you have uh, technical support or sales support or customer support or any of these kinds of things, there needs to be a way of passing that kind of information along. And there, and there are ways of passing that kind of information along if you set up your test properly. You can pass through all kinds of variables. You can even, even if somebody calls in from your website, um, you can assign call tracking numbers based on the test variation they saw. So, and that, and that can pull through, like, you know, with your IT support person, it can pull through, hey, oh, this is a test version, and here's the notes on this, or whatever, here's the things that we changed. Um, so, there's, there's lots of ways to provide that kind of supporting information to people, and with all that being said, you can do all the preparation in the world, and sometimes, like, 
people just have no idea what's going on. And this, this also happens a lot if you have like a lot of return visitors to your site. So if you have like customers, um, you know, we, I've done a lot of testing for like the mortgage industry and it's like people that come to this website every month to pay their mortgage. And then you like move a button on the website and people freak the crap out. It's like, how do I log into this thing? Right. And it's like, uh, so, so that's where it's really important that you have really open communication. So that if they're calling in going, Hey, I can't f figure out how to log in your support. People know, Oh, Hey, try looking at the bottom of your page instead of the top or vice versa. Um, but I mean, yeah, you bring up a really, really valid concern and this, these kinds of things do happen. And that's why it's important to run these tests, uh, to not run these tests for longer than is needful. <laughs> um, you know, you want to, you want to gather your data. And as soon as you have a really good statistically significant data set, you want to turn the test off and, and now publish that for everybody so that you don't have, you know, two or three or four or five different experiences going at the same time. How do you, how do you separate that, uh, separate that noise of people freaking out from like real test results? Like I know uh, one that comes to mind immediately is when I was, uh, when I was in high school, I remember Facebook did, did like a, like a big facelift at one point and people were freaking out saying, Hey, we need to have the old Facebook back. And they, they went nuts. But then, you know, eventually, you know, the kind of like the fog clears, if you will. And then people are like, Oh, you know, it is easier to post pictures with this new like user interface. So I'm just not going to complain anymore. Like, how do you kind right. of separate that like hysteria versus like people actually settling in? Yeah. So this is, this is where it's really important to, to segment your data. So when the, the, the great thing about doing AB testing is, I mean, you are really analyzing data. That's all you're doing. Um, and I mean, it's not just that simple. That's not all you're doing, but, but um, you know, when you're going and you're analyzing how did this perform? A lot of times I will have clients that come and they're like, I had like three clients call this week and, and yell at me because of how much they hate my website. And it's like, okay, that's, we'll, we'll add that to the data set. So three unhappy clients, um, you know, but if you are able to go in and you see the data and it's like, okay, yeah, those three clients hated the website, but 50% of, of the other population loved it. Like, you know, out of, okay, so we had version A and version B. Version B, this new website where we changed something, performed, um, you know, 50% better. It's like, okay, well, I'll take three unhappy customers to get whatever, 50 more customers than I would have gotten ordinarily. Um, so so one, one thing that is helpful as well in canceling out that noise, especially if you have a lot of, like, really loyal customers, I mean, your loyal customers are going to let you have it. I mean, Facebook is a perfect example. Anytime Facebook changes anything, uh, people go nuts um, because people use Facebook every day. And so you have a lot of very loyal customers, which is a really good thing. And loyal customers are often the most vocal. Um, and so if you have a lot of loyal customers, this is where it's important to, to kind of break down your data into segments. So when you're running an A-B test, you can segment out your results. So for example, here's some common segments that I will look at. I'll say, how did this perform? How did this test perform for new visitors versus returning visitors? How did this test perform for logged in customers versus people that were not logged in? How did this test perform for people that were on Internet Explorer versus Google Chrome? Right. I mean, and and so what you can start to do is you can start to see trends. Um, you know, you'll see, for example, like, OK, overall, 
it seems like version one is performing much better. But when I start to dig into things, uh, you know, new visitors really, really like this new experience and return visitors really hate this new experience. Um, and that's when the idea, that's when the whole concept of like website personalization comes up because then you go, oh, interesting. So maybe we should have a different site experience for new versus returning visitors, right? So maybe when somebody comes to our site and they are a new visitor, or in other words, they don't have any cookies from our site on their, on their machine, let's show them this experience. And if they do have cookies, any kind of cookies, then we'll show them this other experience. And, and that's when you really start to create a, a beautiful and customized website experience. Uh, you know, sites like Amazon are, are so good at doing this. You know, every time you go back to the Amazon homepage, they will show you products based on what you've looked at last time you were on the site. Uh, but if you're a brand new visitor, they're going to try to get you to sign up for an Amazon Prime membership. Um, and so th this is, that's where, um, again, that's where a website can get really complicated and it can also become really, really sophisticated um, and awesome. And you can definitely see that sort of uh, dedication, I guess, with Amazon, like as you mentioned, because there's there's a fair bit of, uh, how would I say it? It's sort of like when you sign up for that Prime membership, you know, they kind of leave you alone about it. Whereas other sites, I don't know whether it'd be an issue with their cookies or maybe they just didn't do that A-B testing where there's different versions for a logged in uh, person or a premium user or a Prime user, but like you'll maybe buy you know, whatever their services, and then there'll still be advertisements or links bugging you to buy whatever it is. And it's like, no, I, I have, you know, I have purchased this, like, leave me alone. Uh, yeah, you know, what drives me, what drives me nuts is when I subscribe to a, to a, I, I give my email address and I subscribe, and then they keep giving me the pop up to subscribe again. Um, it just drives me bonkers. Unsubscribe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> And that's and and that's the thing too, and I, and we're gonna get, we're gonna actually touch on on those on those pop ups because Mike and I have talked in depth about those uh, quite a bit on the show, and uh, they're kind of like the the bane of the internet, but yet there's like good numbers about it. So we're gonna kind of obviously dive into that <laughs> a little bit later as well. Um, we'll dive into the next question here. So with all this, as we can already tell, there's a ton of information already on the table here, and and with that, the world of SEO, so that's search engine optimization for the listener out there, uh, seems to be you know it kind of seems to change all the time, and. So much so that smaller agencies like ours, like Mike and ours, will generally kind of find it difficult to keep up with all the tips and tricks out there. Uh, so what kind of advice can you offer to the freelancer that's more of a jack of all trades? So, you know, Mike and I are more technical. So we're into the development. We are doing the design. We are doing the marketing, but we're not a master of any one of those three. Sure. So the, the first thing that I typically say to people is, um, you need to remember and understand what the purpose, like when you're talking about search engine optimization um, specifically, you need to remember what the purpose of Google is, like what, what Google is trying to accomplish. Because um, where SEO becomes really complicated is if you're trying to stay on top of the latest algorithm change, right? It's like, I'm trying to uh, give Google what the latest algorithm change tells me that Google wants. Um, that's a tricky game because it's always changing and you feel like you have to make major changes to your site every three months whenever a new, a new algorithm change gets pushed. Um, what Google's really trying to do, the reason they keep changing their, their algorithm, first of all, is because people keep gaming it. And so if you're just jumping on top of gaming uh, the search engine, you're going to lose eventually. Um, you know, I saw 
all kinds of websites back in back in the glory day of SEO where you could just create a blog network and link to your own site a thousand times from you know crappy blogs that you owned and just shoot up to the top of you know anything it's like okay well that's not the best website ever out, out there what Google's really trying to do is they're trying to find what website has what our users are looking for right like out of all of these billions of websites that exist which one has the answer to the question this person's asking or which one has the products these people are looking for or the service these people are looking for right and so um and so if you can remember that and instead of worrying about like oh crap i need it my page needs to say this word this many times if you can just try to instead get in the mind of your customers this is where a b testing is really helpful to say what what does my customer want to see when they come to this site what are they looking for? How am I going to give them that information as, as well as I possibly can? Um, you will eventually win with SEO. Now, I, I'm not going to like make any promises that like um, you're immediately going to be ranked number one for every term that you want to be ranked for because that's just not going to happen. Um, but what will happen is as Google's algorithm changes, they're trying to get their algorithm to, to behave like a human being does. Um, and they fail in so many respects in, in, in doing that, but they're actually getting pretty good at it. And they look at a lot of things like they look at when somebody does come to your website, how long do they stay? What things do they click on? You know, do if, if you have a high bounce rate on your site, that's bad, it's bad for SEO rankings. Um, of course, they're going to look at things like how many links point to your site, but they're looking even deeper than that. And they're looking at how often are those links engaged with and are people talking about your you know, about your company online um, and, you know, and those kinds of things. And so again, if you can just focus on creating the solution that answers the questions that your users have, or that, you know, if you're selling a product, for example, you want to show how this product meets a need of somebody, you know? So like if you're selling iPhone cases, what you need to be focused on and what you need to be really worrying about is, Okay, what are my unique value propositions? People obviously need phone cases. Why do they want mine? Is it because it's cheaper? If, if that's it, if that's your unique selling point, then focus on that. Like the cheapest iPhone cases out there, you know, if it's because they're the best quality, then focus on the quality and show users that you have a great quality product. Um, if it's because you have free returns, and like, you know, shout that out loud and clear. But I mean, I mean, again, it's about figuring out why do my users care about what I have on my site and how can I show them that in a way that really resonates? Um, so that's uh, kind of an earful for that question. But um, I, I, I do not advocate for chasing the Google algor algorithms. <laughs> And that's and that's definitely that's definitely really good advice because we do have uh, a, like a, a quite a few clients actually that are always that always come to us and be like all right well you know I'd like this this you know this website done up real quick and I and I want you to just get it to the top of Google and I'm like all right well like you know what do you have on the site and they'll be like well you know put my phone number and my slogan and my logo and let's go with that and it's like well I mean Google's going to see you know an image one phone number and you know one line of text there's not really much for it to take in. And as a result, like even I, like if I was pretending to be a customer, even I don't care about your website. So it's kind of hard for Google to care. And it's hard to like kind of 
portray that or like kind of explain that to someone who's just like, no, no, just get us on the top. Like, you know, make, you know, I don't know, make, do something with the keywords. And it's like, well, I'm not going to do all these growth hacks and then have them break tomorrow and then have you calling yep. saying, Hey, what's going on? You know? Yep. <laughs> so it's really good to hear that you're, you're definitely all about the content first, which is good. And uh, like uh, maybe I'll have to play some of our customers, this particular question and answer, but <laughs> just, to well, prove, and, you know, <laughs> one more thing that I'll just say on, on that note. Um, and this probably will, this probably won't be contrary to what you already think, but um, I was watching a show with my wife on Netflix. I don't even remember what the name was, but it was, it was these guys that help people um, fix up their house so that it, so that they can rent it out as an Airbnb. Um, so like, you know, somebody says, Hey, I have an apartment. I want to get it all spruced up so that, you know, I'll get a lot of people that will come and stay here. I'll make a lot of money off of it. Um, and so they have these, all these designers that come out and help you shop for furniture and all this stuff. Um, and anyways, this one guy had, had this apartment and goes out with these designers and they start shopping for furniture for like couches. And the, and the designer says, oh yeah, okay, well this couch would look really nice with this and this. And the guy goes, well, I don't like that couch. And at first they were just like, okay. Um, you know, but then they're like, oh, hey, we could put this bed in the master bedroom. And he goes, oh, I don't like that bed. And after a while they're like, this furniture is not for you, man. Like this is for people that are gonna be coming to stay at your house. Doesn't yeah. matter what you like. Like, doesn't matter if you like the couch. Doesn't matter if you like the bed. Like other people are going to like it <laughs> and that's who this is for. And that's one of the most important things to remember with a website is like this site is not for you. And the site frankly is not for Google either. Like this site is for your customers, like your potential customers. And so you need to make sure that everything you do is in their best interest. Is it is, is taking their frame of mind into account. Like what do they want? What do they need? What do they care about? What are they going to read and what are they not going to read? Because you could, you, like, there's a lot of sites out there that vomit a ton of information onto people, like just tons of text content uh, that people never read. And that's not helpful. That's not helping uh, your users. And so it shouldn't be there. That's a really good, that's a really good point because there's, um, I mean, cause I always, like I was mentioning to you before the show, I, I kind of deal with a lot of our smaller business customers and a lot of the time, they'll say like, you know, you know, some, some businesses can play the local angle pretty good. And so like their kind of origin story or their uh, local fling on something, if it's food or something like that is, is, is welcome. But then there's some who want to put up like, you know, a nine paragraph or like a whole essay about like, you know, their upbringing and how like their farm life <laughs> made them like a mechanic or like something like, you know, I'm just making something up. But it's like, at the same time, it's like, no, man, like, you know, I don't like I'm I'm working for you and I don't care like you know what I mean like that is and and this isn't for you you know this is for somebody else that's like coming to your website that wants to like I don't know buy your product or buy your car parts or whatever it is and so as a result it's sort of like no like maybe we shouldn't do that and it's it's always kind of difficult like that's always a difficult thing to tell a customer like yeah maybe you've been planning on having this on your site for a while you know maybe you saved up then called us but it's like man I don't I don't want to put that on there because it's going to like it's, it's not going to get used, right? Like that page is just going to get like clicked through essentially. It's like, Oh, what's this? All right. Well, that's too long to read. You know, I just yeah. want this car part. I want this suspension or like whatever it is. So yeah, that's interesting to hear for sure. And uh, I think with that, we'll actually move on to the uh, next, 
the next segment here because we're kind of starting to dive into the specific pages and the specific the specific content that we see. So this this next question kind of complements it perfectly, I think. And that is that you know, so we recently had a segment, and we mentioned this before. We recently had a segment on the show that discussed our obsession with conversions. So and whether or whether or not that if those are getting in the way of the user experience and sometimes hurting the actual product or the content itself in some cases, if it gets out of hand. So one thing that stood out in particular were the onslaught of pop-ups that are on so many sites today. So like we already mentioned, the newsletter signups, you know, there's cookie warnings now, there's account registration requests, you know, support and sales chats, whether it be a sales bot or someone actually bugging you. So what is your what is your take on these trends? You know, are, are these just sort of those growth hacks, those conversion hacks? You know, what, what do you think about those type of things? Um, that's a good question. And, and it is certainly a, I, I'll say a somewhat controversial topic. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of businesses that I talk to that are, that have very, very strong feelings one way or another. Usually it's very strong feelings against any kind of like pop-up. Um, and, and usually it's because it's like, well, I hate pop-ups, therefore we shouldn't have pop-ups, right? Right. Um, and 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 I I usually will challenge people on that, um, and say you don't hate pop-ups, you hate pointless pop-ups. <laughs> you hate pop-ups that don't do anything to help you. Um, you hate pop-ups that interrupt your site experience um, needlessly. That, that's what you hate. Um, you don't hate getting 15% off your purchase. You don't hate getting a free product today. Um, you don't hate, um, you know, skipping, skipping through multiple pages and finding the thing that you're looking for quickly. Um, and so that's the, the first, the first thing that I will say is, um, there is a lot of data that supports these or else people wouldn't be doing it. And I've run, I have run dozens, if not hundreds of AB tests on pop-ups um, and, and on, you know, page slide-ins and all kinds of other things um, that have shown that it positively, positively impacts conversion rates. Um, and so it's, it is, it, it is working and don't do it just because other people are doing it. Um, what you want to do is if you are going to try a pop-up or a slide-in or something that could potentially interrupt people's side experience, you definitely want to A-B test that because I have seen cases where do it, having a pop-up or a slide-in or any kind of like site interruption hurts conversion rates. Um, and usually when it hurts conversion rates is when you are trying to get people to do something that they don't want to do. Like when you're trying to force them by taking over their screen, right? Um, but where it works particularly well is if you have something that could be very beneficial to the user. And so things that I've seen that work really well are if you are um, a lead gen site, you're trying to generate leads like you're a service business or um, an event type business or whatever, um, things that work really, really well as a pop-up are um, special offers. So like if you have some kind of like special research that you've done, um, one, one great example that I'll use is uh, there's a site out there called social media examiner, the largest social media blog on the planet. Um, they get tens of thousands of email subscriptions every month by 
pop-ups. And the way that they do that is they spend time once a year compiling up like all of these uh, social media statistics. They do a survey and then they compile it all into a giant ebook. that's like 50 pages long. That's so like, you know, the social media industry report. Um, and it's like, this is a lot of great information that will be really beneficial to you. And we'll also keep sending you this kind of great information. And people want that. Like, that's why they're on the freaking site in the first place. They want to learn about social media. And so, you know, he's found a great way of, uh, the, the owner of Social Media Examiner has found a great way of capitalizing on what people want and giving that to them in a pop-up. And so that pop-up is extremely, like, extraordinarily successful. Um, I've also seen these work very well if you have any kind of like discount um, that you can offer where it's like get 10% off your purchase today by subscribing. And you also get their email address so that you can keep sending them offers later on, right? So there's like a kind of a double whammy. You, you make it a lot more likely they're going to purchase today because now they have a discount code. And you also make it more likely they're going to purchase later because you, you can now email them with, with, you know, other offers and stuff. And so, um, Again, the, it, it, it can work extraordinarily well. You want to test it. And I always suggest testing how that pop-up happens because there's lots of different pop-up functionality. Um, and so you want to test, should we have it pop up as soon as somebody gets to the site? Should we have the pop-up on a 30-second delay? So once they've been on our site for 30 seconds, then it pops up. Should we have it pop up once they scroll more than halfway down the page? Because if they've scrolled that far down, then apparently they haven't found anything they like yet. Uh, should we have it be an exit pop up when you're trying to leave the site? Because we're going to lose those people anyways. So we might as well throw one last ditch effort at them, right? You want to test like what is the functionality of that pop up and see which one generates the best results. Because um, what I see time and time again for different businesses is like different audiences wants those pop-up offers at different times some of them don't want it as soon as they get to the website and some of them do so you've got to just test those different types of experiences and see what your audience likes yeah and that makes perfect sense to me i think uh i, I think when we had our discussion on it uh, i think it was a couple episodes ago now correct me if i'm wrong matt but when we had our discussion on it we kind of assumed that it does work in, in the cases that you're talking about. Like you, you, you obviously described a lot better than we did when we, when we were talking about it, but uh, there are certain situations where it does work. Otherwise it wouldn't be happening at this point, right? Like a lot of websites have pop-ups, so it has to, it has to have worked at some point and it has to continue to work. So why people wouldn't like keep that stuff on their site if it didn't work. Uh, and that made sense to me. The thing that we kind of questioned, or at least I questioned when we were talking about it is, the audience. So depending on your audience, and I thought maybe developers were one of these audiences, maybe is it, is it at all audience based? Like depending on who you're marketing to, like, is there one audience that just hates pop-ups and you can't get a perfect combination? Or is it like you're saying, uh, you just have to find that perfect pop-up, like when to pop it up and then you can conquer any audience. Um, so again, it, it's going to be, a, it, first of all, it is absolutely audience based. Mm -hmm. So, so different audiences respond very, very differently. I mean, developers are a special, amazing and special breed of human beings. Um, they're very, very intelligent. Typically they're very savvy when it comes to online. Um, typically developers are not easily, um, manipulated and, and pop-ups sometimes can be a way of manipulating people into doing something that they were not originally intending to do. 
And so a lot of times things like, you know, for, for, a, dev for a development specific audience, um, you have to, A, not be manipulative in your approach. <laughs> um, B, you have to make sure, again, not just to test when the pop-up happens, but to test what am I giving these people, mm -hmm. right? So like if I test a pop-up and I have, I test an entrance pop-up, a delay pop-up, and an exit pop-up, and none of them work, then that probably tells me I have a crappy offer. So let me come back and try another one, like try a different offer. And let's think about something that these developers might really want. Like let's create a template that they can copy and paste onto their website that they can download, right? I mean, maybe that would be something that they would go for. Or let's create, you know, I mean, there's just like, you, you can think about an endless slew of, um, you know, of, of uh, clickbait type offers um, that, that offer real value to people. Um, and test that. And if that still doesn't work, then maybe you have an audience that doesn't want pop-ups at all. But I will say this, and like I said, I've, I've run probably around a hundred pop-up tests in the last couple of years. Um, I have never found an audience that I could not find an offer that worked in a pop-up. Um, I, I've never yet found an audience where nothing worked. I found lots of audiences where the first approach that we tried didn't work. And so we had to modify that. Um, but the, the other thing that you want to also think about is like, how badly do I want them to do this thing I'm trying to get them to do in the pop-up? Like, um, because if it's hurting my conversion rates um, and I'm just trying to get an email address so that I can keep blasting them with emails, it's probably not worth it. But if I'm like trying to actually incentivize them to convert, or maybe I'm not, I'm already not getting any conversion. And this pop-up is like a way of trying to start getting conversion. Um, then you probably want to try, you want to spend a lot of time trying this out. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's also, you, you need to understand like, what am I trying to accomplish out of this? Like, what, what if I got a thousand email subscribers today? Like, do I even have anything that I'm going to send to them? <laughs> Or is this just to be like, hey, look, look, we got a thousand email subscribers. Like we did it, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so that's that's also very important. Yeah, that's uh, that's really really good insight. And I'm really one thing I'm really taking away from all this, and I'm really happy that that this I'm taking away it is that content is king. Uh, and it seems that like there. I was really worried that this that there was a lot of just like these slimy techniques that everyone was using and that I just wasn't privy to and that like stuff like that. And I was always worried that maybe I should get into these slimy techniques or whatever. Maybe I should at least know that they exist, but I never wanted to go down that route. I always wanted to be like move towards more of a content based and like provide something good, provided in a good way for people to to access it and people will come and people will, will access it if people like it. And I, I'm, I'm glad that what you're iterating is that that's kind of the, the technique. It's not really a, a hack. It's more like, you know, do this thing, do it really well <laughs> and people mm -hmm. will come and, do, and use your, your product. So uh, thanks for, you know, giving my, giving me hope in society again. <laughs> well, and don't get me wrong. There are plenty of websites. Anytime something works, there are going to be, millions of websites out there that that absolutely take any idea to the extreme right i mean that that just totally ruin the good name of that thing um by by just you know just plastering you know there, there's tons of sites out there 
that hit you with pop-ups on every single page and that gate their content on every single page. I mean, like, I don't know if you guys read articles on Forbes. I don't know if they still do this because I haven't been to Forbes website for a long time. They do. Because every single time you go to read a freaking article, you have to go through some interstitial pop-up that like, you know, it, it creates all this confusion and frustration and and has led to a lot of people not even using Forbes anymore. Like they've they've completely um, shunned their audience because they just have have gated every page on their site, and it's annoying. And so yeah, there's absolutely people that ruin these things, and there is a very good use case that's in the user's best interest. That's not just a hack. Yeah, and that that that's that's good to hear. Um, but I think let's move on to the next question here. Um, we, Matt and I have been kind of uh, doing some research and doing some testing. I, I get, I don't know if this is AB testing in any formal way, but we've been trying to like write on different blog platforms, write on our own site, uh, write interesting content that, you know, across, across many different places. Um, and we're just wondering like, what are your thoughts on an independent web presence versus using something like a discovery engine where with like, you know, a medium blog or the, there's a new site called dev.to for developers. Um, is there an advantage to kind of using that discovery engine to launch yourself on, or is it better to kind of focus more on your own site, focus, making sure that that's SEO optimized that, that, you know, Google can crawl that and providing the best content on your own site to drive people there. Mm. So that's a really good question. That actually it's, it's similar to what a lot of e-commerce companies will ask. Um, when they start, they go, should I just sell on Amazon? Or should I create my own site and sell on my own website, right? Um, and the, the, the answer, and this is kind of a cop-out, but let me qualify it. The answer is it just kind of depends. <laughs> um, it, it, depends on, it depends on the case. So, you know, creating content on a discovery engine is going to get you eyeballs that you wouldn't normally have, right? Like you're going to get people, you're, you're going to be exposed to people that you wouldn't be exposed to anyways. And that's a good thing. It comes with its challenges, you're kind of at the mercy of the platform, right? Um, if they decide to make some change and it screws you over, like that sucks and that's too bad. Um, and you know, so it's the same thing that happens with a lot of Amazon retailers. They'll start a business, they'll, um, you know, and because Amazon has such a huge online following and people that only shop on Amazon, um, you're going to get a lot of customers that would probably never buy from you otherwise. But you're also at Amazon's mercy. You also have to pay Amazon some ridiculous royalty. Um, and so it's kind of that like, um, you know, it's kind of the cost benefit uh, analysis that you, that you do of going, what is it that I'm trying to do? Am I trying to get in front of as many people as possible? Am I trying to build a, a, my own loyal following and brand? If you're trying to build your own brand and following, then I would probably suggest that you build your own like independent, uh, that, that you do your own thing independent. Um, if you're just trying to get the good word out to as many people as you possibly can, then I probably suggest um, you know, using some of these discovery engines or a combination of that and your own independent, um, your own independent network. But um, yeah, again, you kind of just have to figure out like, <clears throat> If I'm not going to create my own thing, um, there's some trade-off that happens there. There's also a lot of benefit to having your own thing. Like once you build it up, like that's a huge asset that you have. Um, once you've built up a really loyal following, 
that's a major asset that you have that, that is really hard for other people to just take away um, versus, you know, if you've, if you've built up some following on, on a Discover engine, that can just disappear overnight. One one kind of follow up one kind of follow up question I guess I have I guess on that is when it comes to something like um, something like Amazon let's say let's just make a hypothetical situation so it's like you know uh, I make I don't know speakers I go and I I'm like I don't want to make my own thing you know I want to go the route of of the the discovery engine so I decide to go on Amazon you know I'm making a whole bunch of money on there but I start kind of you know getting a decent amount of you know, did a decent amount of sales and making a bunch of money. So then I go, okay, you know, I kind of want that asset. Like you said, I want to make my own thing. Is there a way to sort of like, is that a, is that a viable strategy to sort of go from the discovery engine where you're leveraging, you know, sort of their infrastructure, you know, you're, you are paying them a piece. And then is there a way to transition to your own, own thing like easily? And if there is like, is that a viable strategy? Like what's the, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so that's a good, that's a really good question. Um, it is, uh, so here's what I'll say. It's not a bad idea. Um, in, in practice, it is a lot harder than the theory. So like in, in theory, it sounds really great. Like I'll just build up, I'll, I'll create some brand equity. I will establish myself in the marketplace and then I will transition people over to my site. Um, I've talked to business owner after business owner um, that gets stuck on the on their platform of choice um, because they can't figure out how to transition their audience over. Um, and it, and it's not necessarily just um, Amazon or you know like uh, or Discovery Engine. I mean, this happens with Kickstarter, like businesses that launch products through Kickstarter and they get a huge Kickstarter following, and that Kickstarter following is a Kickstarter following. And so they, they go and they start their brand and they, they can't have success with any other products unless they launch them on Kickstarter again. Um, and so um, I, I will just say, it's, it's, I, I usually recommend if you want to create your own brand, like your own um, loyal customer base or follower, create your own thing um, start there and then maybe supplement it with some of these other things so if you're if you're selling a product start first with your own site and start selling it there and start pushing people to your site and then add Amazon into the mix so then that's just kind of like gravy right um, but that's not your whole strategy initially um, because the the other thing that can happen is you know, I mean, content is one thing, but like when you're selling products or services, you can become a slave to the marketplace that you started in. So it's like, well, um, I've leveraged all of my assets, all of my financial assets to buy products for Amazon. So I can't ever really get out of that game. Like it's not ever like, there's not ever a great time to just walk away from Amazon. <laughs> um, unless you just say, okay, I'm just not going to buy any more products and I'm just going to wait until this product sells out and then, and then I'm going to walk away. But most people don't want to do that. It's like you're constantly in flux and your cash flow is constantly being leveraged. So it's like I'm buying my product right now with money I don't have. So I have to sell these products. But as I'm selling these products, I have to buy more products. I mean, to, 
you know? So it's just like, you're, you're constantly leveraging things and, and it becomes really tricky to get out of that. Um, where it's like, I am making good money, but I also have to keep doing it in order to keep making money. Otherwise I'm, I'm kind of in a really tough financial situation. So same thing kind of with, with, with content, with like the content game, it's not quite as dire of a situation because it's like, okay, well, Hey, I'll just step away from all these people. But there's, there is still the, it, it becomes really easy to mentally get bought in to the feedback you get from some of these other networks, right? Like you have a loyal following. There's people that are engaging with your content. You feel this, that you feel this sense of loyalty to them and you want to continue showing up for them. Um, that's why it's really hard for people to like change like social networks. You know, like I remember hearing the story of like John Mayer, who was, I think like one of the top followed celebrities on Twitter and he moved over to some other social media platform and his social media following like crashed overnight because people didn't want to go to that new social platform and he lost all his followers and it's like oh crap um why well, screwed that one up so yeah i mean i i usually suggest whatever you want to do start with that and then supplement on with some of these other things that's really interesting to hear because i've actually heard recently by a, a quite a few i think it was a couple of articles on medium or something i'd, I'd read where some social media um, experts or so social media like sort of managers had said that when it comes to, so if someone's trying to like, you know, kind of touching on something we talked about earlier. So if someone's kind of playing the algorithm a bit and they're kind of, you know, gaining a following on, let's just hypothetically say Instagram, they're getting a following on Instagram and then they're like, and then Instagram changes the algorithm to an extent. And so, you know, now they get thrown into like the sea of everybody else that's in their thing. Like their content is fine, but there's just a lot of it, for example. So that like those people will be the first to sort of complain saying, Hey, you know, my, my social media following is gone. Like I can't really, like I can't really leverage this anymore. You know, maybe I'm losing followers. Like, you know, what, like what's going on here? Like Instagram hates its, its viewers. And, and I've heard this particular phrase from a few people or for, from a few of these experts. And they've said that it's because Instagram isn't losing those, those, that audience, like you are, but like, they don't care. Exactly. And it's exactly. like, it's their audience. It's like that person's not going to be like, Oh, well, you know, Bill is no longer on Instagram. I guess I'm deleting my Instagram account. No one does that, exactly. right? <laughs> so that's really yeah. interesting. And, yeah. No, go ahead. Sorry. Well, and, and I've seen this happen a lot. So um, there's actually been some really interesting data that's come out recently about comparisons between different like social platforms. Um, and especially with Facebook and Instagram. I mean, Facebook and Instagram are constantly making changes. And I mean, you talk about, you talk about like what's in the best interest of their users. Like, most of the time, Mark Zuckerberg doesn't care what the crap anybody else wants. He knows what he knows what people should want, not necessarily what they're saying they want, but he knows what people should want. And he's thinking, you know, months and months and even years ahead sometimes. And he just goes ahead and does it. And it's like, you know, he, he will go ahead and make a change. And it screws over a lot of people for a while. And a lot of people are really unhappy until kind of like you referenced earlier, people go, Oh, this actually is kind of really nice. Um, but, but I've seen a lot of businesses that have lost a ton of traffic from, from sources like Facebook and Instagram and, and oddly have picked up traffic from places like YouTube because people are, because people are consuming so much content on YouTube um, that YouTube suddenly becomes this great platform to find like eyeballs that are really interested that are going to consume a lot of content 
um, when all of your followers disappear everywhere else. Um, and so anyways, yeah, again, it, it, it's really difficult if your whole business or your whole um, livelihood or your whole, like if your hobby is writing um, or, or your hobby or, or your, your business is based on, um, you know, your, your content that you produce out there um, and you are completely at the mercy of some other platform that's not a good thing. You want to diversify. You don't want to have all of your eggs in one basket. And so, um, again, that's where it becomes really helpful if you start with your own thing um, and then just use Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, Google, whatever else to just supplement what you're doing. And, that, and that's really reassuring, actually, because um, Mike and I actually, just a bit of a personal story, but like Mike and I recently, we, one of our bigger followings is um, on Instagram and, you know, versus our Twitter and stuff like that, for sure. And one of the things that we were kind of worried about was that we were having a separation of audience. So our podcast downloads are probably, you know, one of the biggest things that we have for, uh, for sure. But our biggest social media, like I said, is Instagram. So we were like, wow, like, I wonder if, if, you know, Instagram is you know actually converting these people into listeners and they're actually going to be like oh yeah i saw this post i'll click on the link in the bio you know and listen to the show or are these people you know completely separate and do we have an instagram audience and then a podcast audience you know because there's you know a million and one discovery feeds that podcasts get fed into and so yep. we we did like a brief really like a real brief test where we did one week where we didn't post anything and i think at the time like this was months and months and months ago but at the time it was like we were getting something like 50 downloads a week on the podcast. And uh, I remember we just didn't post it on there and it literally cut it in half. And then the mm. next day I posted the thing and certainly it went up. And like we did this more recently as well with like just like a one day test where we posted it late. And I think we're at maybe four, let's say 400 downloads an episode each now, like rather quickly, that's what we get. And then it accumulates over time and we'll get, you know, bang, like it'll be 200 or less. And then we'll post on Instagram and then boom, it goes right back up. So that's one of those things where, you know, we're, we're happy to kind of see where it's like the conversion, like we are converting in that way where instead of generating two completely separate audiences, you know, the guy who likes to see web design things posted on Instagram. And then, you know, I mean, it's still actually generating to our core business, which was really critical to hear. And even if, you know what I mean? So that, that's kind of like just a personal story that kind of relates to that, but it's just something that we were really worried about. And then we were able to test really easily kind of thing uh, just to confirm it. So. Um, Absolutely. Sure. And uh, I don't know if you had a comment there. I just was going to move on to the next question. Yep, go for it. Okay. So um, when should, because like related on this, when should a company branch out uh, and try new things away from their base? So for example, at what point should maybe a blog branch out and try making some YouTube related content? Uh, or is there really a way to tell, you know, when to branch out? Is there a way to tell what to branch into? Any sort of testing for that or anything you've experienced? Yeah, so um, th this is one of those interesting kind of like big picture marketing questions. Um, and I, I say it's a big picture, picture marketing question because um, what you spend your time on, um, like your time is a huge investment, even if you're not spending money on it as well. And usually you're spending money on it as well. But, but even if it's just your time, before you spend your time and your money on something, you want to make sure, I mean, the whole point of this question is, um, I want to make sure that whatever I'm going to do is my best chance for success. Um, and so 
there, there's a couple, there's a couple things that I will typically suggest. Um, first of all, this is where AB testing on your website can be incredibly beneficial um, because you can test different types of content on your website. You can test, for example, how does my audience respond to video content, right? Like you don't need to go out and create an entire video content strategy. Just create a video and put it on your site and see how people respond. If your audience likes it and consumes it, like if it, if it increases your conversion rates or your engagement rates on your site, then that will be a good hint to you that, oh, maybe let's try more of this. Let's, let's go down this road a little bit further, right? But if I put a video on my site and conversion rates go down and people are not watching it, then I probably would not spend a ton of time there. Or try one more time, try a different type of video and see how people respond, you know? And so, of course, there's going to be the key people that will come and say, well, Chris, like when somebody's on a website, they don't want video. But when people are on YouTube, they want video. And so how do you know that it's not just because people are on my site? But what I'm saying is this is probably your best way of just gauging your audience's interest, right? Aside from just asking them, but the problem with asking people, like if you just put up a survey and is like, hey, how many of you would watch a show if we made a, a you know, if we did this video and people say yes, the problem with that is <laughs> you're not actually asking people to consume your content. You're just asking them for some like theoretical response. Um, and so I've seen a lot of times where people will do a survey. They'll ask their audience if they want something. The audience says yes. So the company makes it or produces it or whatever. And then it flops. And it's like, wait, what happened? We had data that said we should do this. Um, and it's like, okay, what kind of data did you have? Oh, you asked people their opinion. <laughs> Most people don't have any clue what they actually want. Um, you know, like most people don't know, like, I really hope that this company that I follow or this person that I follow, I really hope that they start creating um, a documentary show that shows me their process for creating their podcast. You know, like they, they, they don't know that. They don't know that that's what they want until they actually see it and consume it. And so that's why you kind of have to do it and, and try it out. And, and your website, if you have traffic to your website, your website is your ideal playground for this. Again, because you have almost total control over what happens on your website. Versus if you have a big Instagram following and it's like, um, well, hey, let me, um, let me try posting a video instead of an article and let's see how that performs. But the problem is maybe your audience likes video, but maybe Instagram doesn't or vice versa. Maybe Instagram really likes video and so you get a ton of engagement and then you go out and invest in a video strategy and it's like, oh crap, our, our real audience didn't actually want videos. It's just the Instagram likes videos. And so we got a ton of engagement on that post because Instagram, you know, moved that up on everybody's, on everybody's feed. And so again, your, your website is your ideal playground for this kind of stuff to test out some content, um, do an AB test so that you can see, does it work better with, with it on or with it off? Do we get more clicks? Do we get more do we get lower balance rates? Do we get more time on site? Whatever your metrics are that you care about, do we get more of that? Um, and if the answer is yes, then do, then do more of that. What would you say would be the cutoff point? So what I mean by that is, you know, like, like you're saying, you don't need a whole plan, but sometimes you maybe post, maybe you have, I don't know, five, vid five video ideas and you post the one that you think is going to be the most successful. 
and then you're, it doesn't do that well. At what point should a company say, okay, you know, like maybe they produce a bunch of videos, five or 10 videos, and they're like, all right, this isn't working. Or maybe it's, you know, gaining a little bit of traction and you're like, all right, you know, this isn't worth it. At what point do you think is, is too early or too late to pull the plug? Cause it's, it's just kind of, you know, just like any company it's spinning up, you know, what, how long do you think? So that, I'm going to answer that just from an A-B testing perspective. You want to gather enough data um, that you can tell for sure that it's not working, right? And so, or vice versa, you want to gather enough data to tell for sure that something is working. So having one successful video is probably not enough data to go out and hire an entire internal marketing team, like an entire video team, just to do video. And I see a lot of companies that will do that. They'll like produce one video and it happens to, you know, whatever it goes viral or maybe it doesn't go viral, but maybe it's just like, you know, <laughs> they get some critical acclaim from their customers that are like, Hey, that video was really cool. I really liked that video. And they're like, Hey, people love this. Let's do it. So they hire a video team. And then a year later, the video team's feeling crappy because they're feeling all this pressure to create some viral video that's never going to happen. Um, or they're, they're feeling some pressure to show some business case that says that they're actually making the company money because, well, shoot, we, we invested because we felt really excited about it. But now here I am a, a year later and I'm no longer excited about it. And it doesn't actually seem to be helping my business. Like, what the hell is going on with those, with those video guys over there? Um, you know, and so, so again, don't put someone else in that kind of situation. Take the burden of proof on yourself to, to prove something out. And so again, you want to have enough data um, that says this for sure works. So when I'm running an A-B test on a website, what's enough data? Well, I mean, I usually want to gather a couple of weeks worth of data. Um, so don't just go based off of like one day's worth of data. I want to have a couple of weeks worth of data and I want to have enough data or enough um, success events. So that could be engagement, it could be time on site, it could be conversions or email addresses or subscribers. Well, I don't want to have enough conversion events that, that, that statistically show me this works for sure um, before I decide to actually go forward and do it. And I want to have enough time, like a couple of weeks worth of data that says this is not working uh, before I'll pull, pull the plug. But I'm not going to do much more than that. Like if I... If I run a test on my site and I test a video versus no, no video and I've tested it a couple of times and, and over the course of a month and conversion rates are down, like I'm going to pull the plug on it and say, okay, we're not doing video. Like let's walk away from it. That's, that's really interesting to hear because I always hear the, um, and I, and it's more from the, the folks that are almost constantly always growth hacking, if that makes sense. But I always hear from the folks like, oh, just constantly post, just constantly post. Like even if you only have 10, 10 followers or like 10 views or 10 whatever in the first year or something like that, like usually it's the first month they'll mention, but it's like, even if you only have 10, 10 of this and you don't see any improvement, just keep posting and it will go up. But like Mike and I have had several discussions where it'll be like, yes, but it also needs to fit like the bill of what someone wants to consume. If, if somebody doesn't want to consume that, you know, just constantly posting will probably slowly gain you an audience, but you might only see like a 10 followers to like 30 followers in a year versus like, you know, somebody could go from one to 10,000 in a day. So. Yep. Yeah. And you, you also, you, you need to, that you brought up a really good point. You need to understand the time frame. 
How long is it going to take me to see success on this? And that's where, you know, using a few weeks to maybe like a month as your like, uh, here's our trajectory. Let's just plot this out over the course of a year. How long is it going to take us to get to a point where this is a valuable, valuable use of our time, right? Like, I mean, if, if things are, are steadily increasing over the course of that month, and it's like, hey, well, we're gaining followers and we went from, you know, we, we went from 100 to 1,000, but like 1,000 isn't enough to really justify this as a channel. But look, if we plot out this trajectory, we continue this growth pace, um, then in six months, it will make sense to us. Then you just really have to decide, am I willing to invest in this in six months and not see the return I want for six months in order to, in order to build this up? Um, you know, and so like you have to take it, of course, from my perspective, my advice is from a conversion point of view, right? Like when you're creating podcasts or videos um, and you're trying to build up a following, um, that is a type of conversion, but that requires a lot more patience than I usually have. <laughs> um, you know, like creating podcasts is something that, you know, like you guys mentioned, the more consistently you do it, um, the best practice says, the more successful you will become long-term. Um, but I, I am usually more in the mode of, listen, I'm weighing a lot of different options. We're testing. We're testing a lot of different approaches. I want to find the best approach. And so what I need to find is the best approach that's going to see the most success the quickest. And that's the approach that I'm going to typically suggest. Well, and I got to say too, is, is it's kind of comforting to hear that there are some better ways to do uh, do this sort of research. Like I know that Mike and I over the years, and I mean, we've have gotten better at it and have started to implement some, some more like, you know, th just through experience, like some more like better decisions and that type of thing. But like we used to, when we started, especially it was just a shot in the dark, like, Oh, if we make this free and put ads on it, people like things that are free. Like that was literally our thought process for some of our projects. Like people like, people like stuff that's free. So if we just make it free <laughs> and put it up there and make sure it's on Google, it'll be fine when it's like, no, you know, no, it will not, not necessarily. <laughs> and so like, you know, that's kind of, you know, sometimes we've shot ourselves in the foot that way. Um, and even, even to this day, like we said, like we're not the most verse, but like we're slowly getting it, but it's, it, it's, it just is comforting to hear that there is sort of a way to effectively test these things. So you're not just, you know, any, any business could fail, but at the same time, it's like a lot of our projects are just like a shot in the dark and it's just like, Oh, let's just shoot over there and hope it hits something, you know? So yeah. <laughs> So this will actually kind of uh, this will actually kind of transition nicely into the next question here, which is talking about some of the problems that companies come up with, or problems that companies hit. So, what are some of the most common problems that you see with company websites or different projects that they're doing? And do you oftentimes see that you know the problems are based on the company size? Like, do small companies fall victim to you know problem A, and big ones fall victim to problem B, or is it you know mixed, or does everyone fall into the same traps? Like, what, what what's your opinion on that? Um, well, so there's different kinds of problems. There's, there's conversion rate problems or things that, um, things that either that you have on your site that are hurting conversion rates or things that you should have on your site that somebody's preventing from being on there, right? There's those kinds of problems. Then there's, of course, there's other kinds of problems that like an IT person would be more concerned with of like, our site's broken, <laughs> right? Or like right, you right. Know, that, that kind of stuff. So I'm going to assume that you're not talking about that. I'm going to assume that you're more talking about, um, you know, what are common problems that I'm seeing um, with, with people's websites um, 
and I'll tell you, there is one major common problem that I see with companies of all size. There's like, there is no magical size where this problem goes away. In fact, if anything, this, this is always a problem and it gets worse the larger the company is. Um, and, and the problem is um, somebody thinking that they know what should be on the site. <laughs> um, it's like the, the gut instinct marketer or the gut instinct business owner. Um, this is especially pervasive with business owners themselves. Um, and, and I say that this is a problem um, and it's an even worse problem for big companies because big companies will cite all this research that they've done. So, so I went in and I, and I met with a company and, uh, and, I, and I sat down and they said, they showed me this, it was the most insane customer persona report I'd ever seen. It was like 75 pages of research they had done um, of like, of like surveys that they had done, phone calls with their customers. Um, they'd done focus groups with potential customers. Um, they had, um, they had done like psychological research on like who these people were and they'd, they'd compiled data into different demographics and they had, you know, put together their marketing messaging for specific demographics and, and customer types, you know, so they're like, you know, here's Sally saves a lot and here's, you know, and she, and she, is um, you know the wife in a in a income home of you know fifty thousand dollars a year fifty to fifty five thousand dollars a year and she has a bachelor's degree and she wants to go back for her master's degree um, and you know and she's and she's black and she's from the south and I mean they have all of this stuff and then they have all those all this data it's just insane and so it's like wow well that's really fascinating data and good for you guys for doing all that research but this is where they took it to the the problem. They said, and because we did all this research, here's what our website should look like and say. And so they made all of these assumptions based on, I mean, they, they were pretty good. Um, they, they had done a lot of good data gathering. And so they were maybe a half a step ahead of most companies that don't do that, but only half a step. I mean, for the tens of thousands of dollars they spent to compile all of that data and put it together, together into this like beautiful 75 page PDF document, like for the tens of thousands of dollars they spent on that, they were only about a half a step ahead of, of everybody else. Um, because none of that data actually tells you what people want to see. I, I actually did a focus group at one point. I did a focus group and I asked people, which site do you like better? And I showed them two sites and like 75% of them voted for, we'll call it version A. Then we ran an A-B test and we actually sent people to both versions and version B performed like 15% better. Um, it converted a lot better. And so it's like, okay, well, we asked everybody what they want, but it turns out that's not actually what they want. And that's because most people don't know what they want. And so, okay, so you guys did all of this research. So what I did, one of the first tests that I ran with these guys, one of the first A-B tests, I call it an existence test. And it's an existence test because I'm just testing the existence of stuff on the site. So it's like, hey, okay, here's your website that is based on all of this great customer research you did. Here's version B where I've taken out all of this great customer stuff that you <laughs> think should be on there. And let's see what happens. So, you know, we, I, I ran probably like four versions of one of the pages of their site. And on all four of these other versions, I removed stuff from their site. Removed imagery, removed content, removed value propositions. 
And every single one of them performs better than their existing site. And so what that told me immediately was, number one, all of the conclusions that you guys ran, like drew, not all of them, but most of the conclusions that you guys drew from all of this data is wrong. You can't say because Sally saves a lot is has this income and is from this from this background and is from this demographic. She wants to see all this stuff and she wants a picture of somebody that looks like her and she wants um, you know, this amount of content. Like you can't say that. It's impossible to predict that. The only way to the only way to know for certain what you should have on your site is by trying out some different approaches with an A-B test and then seeing what people actually like. Um, you know, I, I saw this also in with uh, people in the medical profession. So I worked with a company that did um, genetic hereditary cancer screenings for doctors. And so it's like their customers are doctors. And so their pages were all just like chock full of like ridiculous amounts of content with big words and, you know, and all of this medical research. And, and I said, well, why do you have all this content on there? And they said, well, because our customers are doctors. They're really smart. They read a lot and they care about all this research. And I said, I bet they don't. And so we ran a test and we removed a lot of that research and conversion rates went up by like 60%. Oh, wow. And so again, it's like, yes, your doctors are, you know, your, your clients are doctors and they are smart. And that doesn't mean they want to read all of your crap. Like that's just some information that you have and it doesn't actually mean anything. So that's the biggest problem that I see. And it's, and, and it's um, the larger the company, the more opinions you have, the more people that you think, um, you know, the, the more data you think you have, and it's a lot easier to think that you've, that you've got things figured out. And then with small companies, it's equally dangerous because you've got the entrepreneur that knows everything about his business and everything about his audience and, and knows everything that should be on the site. Yeah, that's uh, that is super interesting. <laughs> Considering we're probably in the same boat <laughs> as those <laughs> entrepreneurs, but it, it it makes perfect sense. Like, you're, you're, I think one of the biggest takeaways from this whole entire uh, question question answer period is the fact that people don't know what they want. And uh, our assumption, I, I don't know, I don't know about Matt actually, but my assumption was like by asking them, you could get some useful information uh, or a lot of useful information. But it sounds like that's not really the case. It's more. It's more just being kind of good at user experience design, doing the doing the actual user experience, doing maybe a couple of different variations of what you think will work because you're the professional in this case. Like we understand how a website should work. We understand how people should be going through a website. So we should put our best foot forward and then letting letting the actual product speak for itself in an A-B test. So that's I'm definitely going to change the way I think about uh, UX design and I think about taking user feedback and stuff like that just just from this conversation. So thank you very much, Chris. You're enlightening us lowly entrepreneurs. <laughs> and let me just let me add one more quick tip. Um, if you are going to run an A/B test, um, I mean, because it doesn't just have to be version A versus version B. It could be A versus B versus C if you get a good amount of traffic. Um, but you want to give yourself the opportunity to be wrong. And the way that I usually will suggest that people do that is create a variation that is what you think people want and then create a variation that's the opposite of that. So if you think people don't want information, then create a version, a version that doesn't have much content and then create another version that has a ton of content, right? So that way you are, you are giving the audience the opportunity to prove you wrong. 
And what it also does is that that gives you a really, really clear answer. Like if the one with less content wins and the one with more content tanks, then you know for sure that people don't want a lot of content, right? Um, but if it's like, well, I just pulled some idea out of my butt and tried it and it worked, uh, do I know for sure that my idea was right? I know more now than I did before, but I am not positive. I might have just like tried something different and it worked because it was different. Um, and so, yeah, anyways, you, you want to like, if you think that people want to see a picture of you on every page of your site, have a version that has it and a version that doesn't <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and test that. And if you think that people want uh, lots of video content on your site, then have a version that has video content and one that doesn't. I mean, always, always be willing to challenge your ideas um, because, you know, as somebody who's run over a thousand A-B tests in my career, I am regularly wrong. I mean, you could probably flip a coin and be right as often as I am. And you would think that after doing A-B testing for six, seven eight years, um, you would be able to predict the outcome of tests pretty often, but you can't. So you've got to constantly give yourself the opportunity to be wrong. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's really, I guess, humbling would be the word to, to describe it because, um, yeah, like I think your, your idea of just being able to be wrong and just trying many different things is something that a lot of, you know, young developers and just developers that are just starting out, um, have a have a weird feeling about like we think that oh we just got to put our best foot forward and that should be the right way and if it fails it fails and then we move on to the next thing but really uh we should be trying different ways of doing things and seeing what the right way or the wrong way is because even if let's say both ways don't work really well you can kind of take that experience of doing that a b test see what worked in both those ways and then move on to the next project with that whereas if you do one way and you like you think you fail in whatever definition of the word fail for you is, you're not really getting as much out of it. So really, really interesting insight there. And uh, I think with that, though, we'll move on to the next question. We, we haven't really talked a ton about marketing and how, how to market yourselves, but it's something I, I think because of this question, because a lot of developers, ourselves included, feel like we don't feel natural marketing ourselves. We don't feel like we, I don't know if it's a deserve thing or if it's just like, we feel kind of weird about marketing. Um, it, it, it's a strange phenomenon because developers, you know, we make the product or the creatives, I guess, but we don't like the the process, or at least a lot of us don't like the process of putting ourselves out there and, you know, you know, spending any money on ads or even going on other people's podcasts and talking about our products or trying to put ourselves out there in any way. We think that people should just come to our website and that's it because we made this product and, you know, it's the best or whatever. Um, so what, what would you say, what would suggestions you would have for people out there, for developers out there, our audience, for kind of pushing them a little bit to put themselves out there and do the marketing work, like, you know, research marketing and provide people an opportunity to actually get their product? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I've seen this a lot where one of the things that, that product developers like or just developers in general like is um kind of being behind the scenes guys where it's like i make stuff happen um but i don't necessarily love the spotlight being shown on me mm -hmm. um right and it's and 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 that's not a bad thing like i mean that's um it's 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 not a horrible thing to to feel that way um 
there's a lot of ways that you can market without having to be a sales guy, without having to be um, uh, trying to manipulate people. I mean, I think, I think it's easy to think of marketing like the used car salesman. You know, it's like slicked yeah. back hair and it's like, what do I got to do to get you inside of our app today? You know, <laughs> like, um, and, and that's, that's not what it is. Um, you know, marketing at its essence, I mean, developing, developing a product, you, every developer wants their product to be used and you want it to be used well. And you want to make sure that the product is built as well as it possibly can. Um, you know, that's what a lot of developers love is the constant challenge of solving problems, figuring out what the problem is, solving that problem with a new innovative solution. Um, and marketing is a, is a challenge. It's a problem that needs to be solved. It, that's not to say that like that the people that you're marketing to are a problem, but if you can think of it like a problem and the problem is how do you know what people want? Like you think you've created the best product, the best app, the best website. How do you know? How do you know that it couldn't be better? And if it could be better, don't you want to make it better? Um, of course you do. And if, and if you knew the choke points, if you knew um, with data where the issues were, then you would want to jump in and you would want to fix it in a heartbeat. And so if that's the way that you're going about it, I mean, that's one of the things that I love about what I do is it feels kind of like, like Sherlock Holmes detective work where it's like, I'm trying to sniff out, like, how can I make this site better? And maybe some of the ways I can make it better is just making it function better, right? Like um, faster load times um, or, or I, you know, um, or compressing, compressing images or create or, or making the, um, you know, taking a five-step sign-up process and turning it into a two-step sign-up process. Um, you know, whatever, like those are, those are fun and those are great ways to improve this, this process. There's also other things like what if, um, you know, again, what if reducing, drastically reducing the amount of content on the site, increase the number of people that actually use the dang thing that you built. That would feel pretty dang good. And so like, that's where I used to, um, I, I used to sit down with our um, design and development team once a month and review all of the test results of things that pages that they had built where it's like, hey, you built this. Now let me show you some of these results. And I mean, these developers would be like licking their chops because they're like, this is amazing. Like, I, I love this. This It validates all the time that I spent building this stuff, right? Like if people are using it and they're excited and, and, and now more people are using it, like this makes me feel really good about what I did. Like I, I made something that was valuable. Um, and so that's that's all I would really say there is, is marketing is not about manipulating people. It's not a, really about selling to people. It's about um, figuring out the best way of doing whatever it is that you're doing. It's about figuring out the best way to have a product flow, to have an app experience, um, and figuring out how to constantly iterate on that and make it better. Um, and it's and it's using data to do that. Yeah, and I I think uh, you you hit the nail on the head a little bit with the whole uh, used car salesman. Like I feel like that's what we feel like when we're trying to like promote our products or talk about our products. Uh, and and it's you're absolutely right. It's an absolute necessity to a talk like be able to talk about your product and you know put it out there, and b to be able to create the best product possible. Like like you said, with the data available to you, 
solve the problem the best way you can. And that, that is in a sense the how you're doing marketing. Um, and I, I think that, that it's really valuable for people out there to hear it. I know I, I constantly have to hear that kind of stuff. I, we try to put ourselves out there now more and more, especially with this podcast. Uh, and that's definitely helped. But before I know I felt really awkward, uh, just promoting any sort of thing in a product or talking about it, or, uh, I don't know, even receiving feedback and stuff like that. Now, like I welcome it. Like I love the feedback. Tell me anything, everything that's wrong with my product. That's the best thing you could do for me. Um, so I think that's where that's kind of the step you have to take as a developer into that next level. Uh, and with that, I think let's move on to the last question here of the night. Uh, marketing seems like an ever changing field, like marketing, SEO, AB testing. It's, it's constantly changing. We're constantly having to adapt. What do you see as the future of the SEO and a, a future of marketing strategies? Um, you know, a lot of people are talking about AI and machine learning and all this garbage. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of good things that are, that are happening right now in the world of, of, you know, of algorithms and of artificial intelligence. And, um, but I mean, the future for me is, is in becoming smarter and better as a result of all of these tools. Um, I don't see, I don't see a point where, um, you know, I don't see a point where somebody is automated out of a job entirely. I see a point where somebody has to change. Like if you're not willing to change, like marketing is not the industry for you. Um, and then really technology isn't the industry for you at all. If you don't, if you're, you know, pretty averse to change, but, um, but, Marketing is about constantly figuring out better and better. How do I speak to people? How do I, how do I understand people? Cause that's one thing that, that, you know, like technology and the algorithms and Google will never be able to completely simulate is, you know, a complex um, human thought pattern and thought behavior um, and, and the why behind why do people do the things they do? Um, because I've seen I've seen some really interesting and innovative um, algorithms out there, and the algorithms are not digging deep into problems. They're you know I mean they, they dig really deep into data, but all they're doing is they're just making decisions that are based on data, right? So it's like, okay, people like this, do more of this. Okay, people don't like this, do less of that, right? It's like it's just based on data, but it's not based on, huh? Well, that's interesting. Why? Well, if people don't like that, how can we innovate? How can we think beyond what we just tried? How can we innovate and understand what people are really looking for and, and try to take a massive leap forward? Um, that's, that's, I think, what the future of marketing is, is taking some of this data that we're able to gather with our more and more sophisticated marketing tools and being able to take bigger and bigger innovative leaps um, to really solve for the user experience and to really speak to what people actually want. So I, that's kind of a vague answer, but that's, I think the future of marketing is very bright in my mind. Mm -hmm. And I, I think you, you actually uh, mentioned how that one company that spent all the, all those thousands of dollars gathering all that data and stuff like that. Uh, I think that leads right into the fact that uh, machines would have a very hard time. They would do kind of the same kind of brute force strategy, right? 
what's this, what's this woman's thoughts? Like what, what, what is her background and stuff like that? And then try to make something for her where we've, you've been saying, and with, with all the data you have, that's not a, a viable strategy. Like we can't predict what a person will want until we show them it and actually see them in action using it. So yeah. it's, uh, it, I think you're, I think you're right in the sense that we're not going to be replaced by AI. Like, yes, we might have the AI might make our job better and make our job actually um, more efficient, maybe not even more efficient, but we're just might be get better at it, but it's still going to be a con like, it's going to be an even more complex process to get there uh, with AI. I don't think it's going to really chip away at anyone's, you know, livelihoods or anything like that. So it's, it's, right. it's cool how those worlds kind of collide. Yeah, absolutely. All righty. Well, um, I think, uh, I think what we'll do right now is, uh, I always offer uh, to the guests, uh, whether they want to do web news or not, but I know that Chris has to take off, uh, relatively soon. Um, unfortunately. So, uh, I think what we'll do is we'll kind of let, uh, kind of let Chris kind of take the, uh, take the floor, if you will, almost at the primal floor. Like, what is this? The apocalypse? Like, what am I talking about? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'll kind of like take the floor and, you know, kind of, uh, let us know. I know you already let us know what you're up to, but like, let us know what you're up to specifically right now. Anything you want our listeners specifically to, um, anything you want our listeners to specifically hear, uh, or anything like that. And we'll of course put any of those, uh, show notes or any, any of those links into the show notes. So, uh, take it away. Yeah. So, I mean, AB testing is, um, is something a lot of people want to get started on and it can be very intimidating um, and so if, if anybody wants to get started with A-B testing and, and would like to be pointed in the right direction, I'd love to offer some, um, you know, some, some tips and, and, uh, or some, some articles to check out. Um, so people want to reach out to me. I am on LinkedIn. My, uh, name is Chris Daly. My last name is spelled D-A-Y-L-E-Y. Um, I should have a website up here in the next, um, in the next month or so. Um, which will be smart-cro.com. This business is just barely getting off the ground though. So right now you'll probably just get a coming soon page. Um, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to continue helping businesses um, and, and I, I, helping businesses with A-B testing. And I'd be happy to help any of the listeners that are interested in getting started with A-B, test, uh, with A-B testing if they just want to reach out. Excellent. And uh, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show, Chris. That's, uh, this, the, this has been very, very enlightening. I'm sure, I mean, Mike has uh, also said that several times throughout the show. It's been very, very enlightening for us. We uh, were complete, complete noobs in the, in the marketing game, uh, taking very many uh, shots in the dark and then eventually estimated shots in the dark. So I think uh, us as well as the listeners are really going to take, take away a lot of really great information from this episode of course so uh we really thank you for that and uh, again thank you for coming on the show yeah really appreciate thank you so time. much for having me on the show guys i appreciate it and i hope you guys really enjoyed that interview with chris unfortunately he wasn't able to stay with us for the web news but we still have that as it is our recurring segment and it's going to be a bit of a repeat not a repeat in terms of content but mike kind of mike recently watched Apple's uh, developer conference, uh, which is WWDC19. I only caught the bits and pieces, so I'm going to let Mike take it away with some points. He'll kind of present it to me, and then I will, well, him and I will discuss our opinions on that. All right. So, uh, Apple WWDC19. So, uh, just a little background why I'm watching these things. We have some deployments in production right now 
that rely on uh, Safari's implementation of PWAs, so the progressive web app infrastructure. And as as with Apple, they are always kind of doing things differently. So they do PWAs on iOS differently than Android does, than Microsoft does, like everyone. Uh, so we kind of have to make sure that we're always staying compliant to their I- infrastructure. And there's a few little things. Uh, w- one, for instance, is the get user media. So to actually access like microphone and camera, uh, that's not available in iOS's implementation of PWAs. It is available across the board on all other implementations, but just not iOS. So we're kind of hoping because we rely on those features sometimes uh, that they'll be implementing it into their current infrastructure. So that that's the main reason why I was watching WWDC this year, just to see if they're going to have any mention of PWAs. Unfortunately for me, they didn't. Although I did see that recently they did reply to a bug request for their uh, WebKit, WebKit infrastructure that they will be addressing this this problem, this get user media problem in, in PWA. So looks like we'll have a solution to that at some point. But let's move on to what actually happened during Apple WWDC. It was pretty interesting this year. Uh, I'll start off. I'm not going to mention everything because like, I don't think anyone here is really interested in absolutely every little thing. Uh, But I will, I will mention the things that interest me. And I think that the things that affect web development in some way whatsoever. Um, So first thing here, iPad OS. So traditionally, there's only been kind of iOS and Mac OS. Now there's going to be a variation of iOS called iPad OS, which will have more more focus on like multitasking, widgets, mouse support, more focus on a fully featured kind of hybrid laptop environment per se. They're trying to push the iPad Pro as like a laptop replacement more and more. So this is a really good step in that direction for a lot of people, maybe not web developers, but on the other hand, there is some interesting development tools inside of iOS that could you could potentially do it on the go if you want to carry something very minimal with you. Um, but it's I, I don't think it's still in any sort of fruition for that, but I think for like a general office user, it is getting to the point where you can plug in a USB mouse in there now and use a USB mouse with iOS, which is kind of cool. Now it's in very rudimentary stages. It kind of shows instead of having like a mouse pointer, it shows like a touch pointer on the screen, but it does work. So you have that. You have USB drive support, which wasn't available in any sort of iOS up until this point. So you can plug in a, a USB-C uh, drive into a, a you know a Mac, an, uh, an iPad Pro and use a USB-C drive, like a hard drive or a, a flash drive. That's kind of cool. So you can have file system support. Um, so th- those kinds of little things kind of make it more robust, in my opinion. Uh, having multitasking, be able to you know browse the web while writing an email. That I mean, that seems like a rudimentary thing at this point. Uh, Android's had that for I don't know how long, like at least two, three years, maybe more, five years. Um, but like iOS is getting that now. I mean, iPadOS is getting that now, so it's kind of it's bringing it to the modern era, I guess. One really cool thing, and this kind of ties into macOS more than iOS or iPadOS, is the fact that with this new update, the iOS 13 update, you are now able to use a feature called Sidecar and attach not either with wire or wirelessly your iPad to your macOS computer and use it as a external monitor, so like an, as an extended desktop. And that, to me, is really cool. And I think that directly applies to web developers in in a way that, let's say you're going on vacation, you're going on a business trip, you bring your laptop with you, and then you bring your iPad with you as well if you, you know, 
use an iPad as your tablet. Now you can kind of take that ta- that iPad out, put it on the desk beside you and have a second monitor. Yes, it's small, but it's still a very functional thing that you can, you know, throw your console logs on there. You can throw your uh, your spreadsheet on there that you're that you're looking at. You can throw your, uh, you know, your your browser up there and do some manipulation. So it's to to me, that's a huge advantage because I, I will always be taking my iPad with me because I need it for work. We do a lot of iOS stuff for work. So now I have always kind of a second monitor with me wherever I go. Pretty awesome. I'll I'll take that any day. Um, that's the praise that I'll give them. Obviously, there's some more interesting things as we go further. Uh, now, the other thing is they've announced the new Mac OS. So this, this sidecar feature is in the new Mac OS called Catalina. Uh, and now it'll bring some cool features as well, kind of like um, iOS apps. Some iOS apps will work in macOS. It'll be as easy as, for a developer, it'll be as easy as clicking a checkbox. Do you want it to work in macOS or not? And then it'll work natively in macOS. I think that's pretty cool. Like, I think they showed the Twitter app because I, for some reason, macOS didn't have a Twitter app up until this point. Now you can use the iOS Twitter app on on there. You can use the Instagram app on there. It's it's cool. Like there there's now a new UI kit as well that they're releasing for developers for macOS, where the UI kit will kind of go across all their different systems. So Watch OS, iPad, iPhone, everything, and then it'll be the same kind of UI infrastructure that you can build. So it'll make it a little bit easier to to develop for iOS. Um, I don't know if that's a huge deal or not. I'm not an iOS developer per se. I use web like I I develop web apps and then convert them to iOS apps. So it's not a huge deal for me, but maybe some people out there will find that kind of cool. Uh, the other thing that happened was they announced the Mac Pro. Um, this, I really don't think, affects web developers as much as some web developers are saying it does. Um, I don't think any web developer really needs that much power like for compiling their code. It's not really like, you know... A quad core can usually handle anything we throw at it. I don't. I haven't had any sort of issues with it. I do have an eight core in my desktop, but like, I don't see a huge difference between even my like six year old Mac laptop and my desktop for performance wise. Um, but essentially, what Mac did is they made like a professional desktop computer. It's a legit desktop. It's no longer a stupid little trash can. Uh, it's actually like a full, fully fledged desktop. And they have all the professional specs you could want in there. So they're not limiting pretty much anything. Uh, it is Intel based. So you'll have, it'll start with an eight core Xeon. Uh, you can have a lot of RAM in there. Uh, <laughs> you can have up to 1.5 terabytes of RAM. Um, and you can have like all the GPUs you want. And it, it, it's a cool, it's a cool thing that they're, that they're giving to professional develop, like maybe not even developers. I think it's more for rendering farms and rent and like professional renderers, the people that need that kind of power, maybe some people that work with the AI power technologies, machine learning, I can see them using that kind of power, not so much for us web developers. So don't worry about it too much, because I'm going to be starting talking about pricing now. Um, the starting price of an eight core 32 gigabytes of RAM, Radeon 580x graphics card and a 256 gigabyte SSD is 6000 US dollars. Um, now this is obviously a ludicrous price. Uh, it, it's tough to justify in any way whatsoever, but it's it's a little bit justifiable just because of the expan- expansion of the device. And again, it's not targeted at you. It's targeted at those professional companies that will be buying probably dozens of these to be able to render their stuff a lot faster and a lot more efficiently. Um, 
so that that's the way I'm kind of looking at it because I don't see it. I just I can't just you can't justify like I would never buy something like this six thousand dollars for that kind of starting place for a two. Another thing that kind of like a slap in the face was the two hundred fifty six gig SSD. It's six thousand dollars. What's what are you doing there? Uh, now it is upgradable, and we don't know the final pricing yet. So everyone's just speculating, but it's it's upgradable to one point five terabytes of RAM, like I was mentioning, twenty eight core Intel Xeon, a four four Vega two the the, the Vega two GPUs on the seven nanometer technologies each having 32 gigabytes of, of VRAM each. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how much, actually, I don't know how much storage you can upgrade it to, but I'm sure that probably like two, three, four terabytes. I don't, I, I don't think there's much of a limit there. Um, I can only speculate how much this is going to cost. And I have, I think I was lowballing it when I said 20,000. I've seen figures in the 40,000s. I've seen figures in the low 50s it's going to cost it's going to cost a car like a, a nice car i think to be able to to be able to max max out one of these things um and then finally they announced a pro display an xdr pro display now this is supposed to compete with reference displays and if you've ever been in the um in the animation industry or in the in the film industry and you need to do color correction for like a large budget you know hollywood fo- movie they buy like displays that are in the 40 20 20 to 40,000 dollar range cost so this display is supposed to compete with those it's six thousand dollars i'm not going to go too far into it because i don't think anyone listening to this podcast is in the is in the state of buy for for using or even wanting one of these displays if you're doing sort of design work i can see you being interested because their color accuracy is amazing and stuff like that but i just i don't see it being worthwhile if you go out and purchase a six thousand dollar display for some color accuracy, when you can easily get like you know a five hundred to a thousand dollar display that will do enough for you in a web development environment, but anyway, it's it's out there. So that that's that's kind of the gist of what happened during WWDC. I just want to kind of put it on Matt to kind of analyze a little bit what he thinks about the new Mac Pro, what he thinks about kind of the, some of the new features. Will he ever consider using? an iPad now with the sidecar feature. It's kind of cool. I mean, that if if they bring sidecar to Windows, that would be awesome as well. Not that they ever will, but something something that could be could be interesting. What what do you think, Matt? Well I think one of the things that are interesting is that <clears throat> like Apple was kind of always the company where, you know, once once Microsoft sort of established the surface line, Microsoft was trying to say like, you know, Windows is sort of everything. And and so, you know, Windows is on your desktop, Windows is on your tablet, Windows Windows can be you know, on that tablet and then act like a desktop, uh, you know, by using uh, the Surface Dock. Wind- Windows is, you know, on the phone. Windows is on their Xbox. Like, it's, it's you know, it's a very versatile OS. And it's interesting that, like, Apple, from that very get-go, was like, no, like, we're going to have separate OSs. You know, basically, iOS, watchOS, I think there may be another one in there, and then obviously macOS. Um, and now that they're separating a- iPad OS, I think it's not a bad idea necessarily because they do have experience with you know, having variants on their OS and iPad OS, as far as I understand it is a variant or at least very, very, very closely related to iOS. And so in, so like, cause they, they still developed iOS all these years for, you know, the touchability and all the rest of it. And they're just kind of tweaking it for this. But what's interesting about this is iPad OS, like we were saying, focuses on multitasking. That makes sense to the screen real estate widgets, mouse support, and USB drive support. What's very interesting about this is this kind of seems almost backwards to me, uh, if you will, 
it kind of seems kind of strange to me when you're when you're saying I think maybe I'm getting more or less caught up on the USB drive support because to me it's like I understand that the iPad Pro and a certain other models I don't really follow the iPads but I know that there's a model out there that does have the USB-C and the first thing I said was why doesn't it just only wirelessly charge like in my opinion Apple Apple was kind of trying to go toward the portless sort of design and now it's like you know they still have that separation factor where they still have the iPad like like the, they still have the iPad the watch the, the 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 computer and the phone which is still separated but now they're trying to bring iPad which has a new version of iOS essentially so iPad OS and they're trying to move that closer to a computer so it's sort of interesting it's like are they trying to do what Microsoft is doing like are they doubling back and it's kind of saying you know they, they they never said they were going to delete ports tomorrow. You know, that was never said. But that was kind of the, the future we all envisioned at this point. You know, get rid of ports, no wires. That That's kind of the end of it. Is is this is this what we're talking about now? Is this or, or, or is this not what we're talking about anymore? Are they trying to bump the lowest end MacBook? Are we looking at Mac Pro? Is that the big tower? Are we looking at Mac Pro, uh, iMacs, whether that's the iMac Pro or whatever, the iMac line? for the prosumer. So Mac Pro for the for the big guys who have a lot of money, the big studios, the iMacs, which are the ones that are just like the all-in-one like the screen. Are we looking at those for the prosumer? You know, MacBook Pro for the professional and then the guy who's just like, you know, I check my email and I play like Angry Birds. Is that what iPad OS is for? And he doesn't no longer needs, you know, that old 7-year-old desktop. He no longer needs that netbook, that that laptop. Is that what they're trying to get at? It's weird because it's kind of, it's melding the two. Like to me, it's like if I had a MacBook, I would have no use for an iPad. I'm not complaining about iPad OS. I think it's a good idea because obviously people are like iPad sales picked up because people are starting to use the iPad Pros, especially with the keyboard cases, you know, more appropriately like a computer with the pencil and with the Apple Pencil and the whole bit. But it's it's just strange to me. It seems like almost a reversal, which, you know, things change that they have this they're they're separating the iPad but then also bringing it closer to the Mac. And so I'm kind of finding myself frig- trying to think where does the base the base like the real base MacBook fit in. They even updated their iPad Air, not at WWDC, but I think recently. They updated, I think they spec'd up one of their iPad Airs or something like that. And it's like where where does that fit in now? Like what are are or they're just going to have a bunch of different devices that kind of fit into the same area. And it's like, Oh, here's your, you know, basic consumer line, you know, base MacBook, base iPad air, uh, and your iPad, like, which one do you want? Is that what they're going to offer? Or are we going to see a, a product or two get bumped? Like iPads coming in, knock out this iPad air or knock out the MacBook air, maybe knock out that base MacBook. Because at the end of the day here, if we're talking about USB drive support, are we going to see a couple of ports now on future iPad iterations? The hardware, I mean, rather than just one. Are we going to see a few added to it? That's a decent question. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so- it's it, it's a good question. I I think you're getting there. I think I think I think you're you're on the right track for what they're doing, and I I, I agree with you. What I what I think they're doing is they're melding. They're trying to bring ipads and ios closer to mac os right like with the whole with the whole integration of ios apps into mac os now 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 like people on macs can use ios apps they have less focus on mac os apps so what i think they're doing is they're trying to bring both into like some sort of central system because inevitably they want to use an arm processor for their macbooks 
because they want to use their own processors. They don't want to rely on Intel. They don't want to rely on anything. So they're going to use their own processors for it. And it's probably going to be ARM-based. So they're going to be kind of dropping support for some macOS functionalities, which is probably going to be a disaster for everyone. But I think that's what the intention is at some point. And they're going to have a one device kind of thing where you can use or one operating system kind of thing. So you're going to have like an iPad or you're going to have a MacBook. Um, but it's going to be using one one OS. And I think you're 100% right that they will be dropping some of their SKUs. Maybe the iPad 12 or the uh, the MacBook 12 inch, maybe the MacBook Air. I don't know, but I think they will be dropping their SKUs because the iPad Pros, like you said, are creeping into not only their like pricing level, but their performance level as well. Like those processors and the iPad Pros are no joke. Like people have done uh, video editing on them and rendering and stuff like that. And they can, they kick ass. Like they, they can do it. And that's why I think adding the USB port support was essential for a lot of people. Because when you're buying an iPad Pro, if you're a video editor, and if you want to do it on the go, there are very good applications on the iPad that can do it plugging in your USB-C fast drive onto there and be able to edit off of it. That's, that's huge for them. I think that was one of the major things they were they were complaining about. So I so I think that's where the iPad Pros are. So they're therefore the prosumer market, only the very portable, quick, like art artistic, I guess, prosumer market that needs that portability, that needs that ability to use a pencil and jot some stuff down or draw something. You know what I mean? Um, those kinds of people. The regular iPads are still for like the regular consumers where they're just looking to, you know, read the news on them or, you know, play some Angry Birds like you were saying or whatever, like just very basic, you know, emails, stuff like that, like nothing, nothing too crazy. Um, but there's still very much need for that. Obviously, most people are consumers rather than prosumers, in my opinion. So they're going to be very much pushing the iPad, like the regular iPad line. I don't know, like you said, with the iPad Air, they did update the specs on it. I don't understand why they did that. I feel like they could just drop the iPad Air and just give iPad those specs, have an iPad, iPad mini, iPad Pro. I don't see the reason for an Air at this point. I mean, they also um, just updated the iPod as well. Correct. They have a new iPod Touch. Um, that's also strange to me. Like, it's... I I, I, I wonder if it's the kids. I wonder if it it's, is the kids. If, if it's like the kid is like, if he's... If he wants, you know, an iPad is sort of out of a kid's price range and possibly out of some parents. So it's like the iPod is sort of the in, it's almost the in-between device where now that it's been updated, it's, you know, it can kind of go toe to toe playing apps, right? Smaller display oh, yeah. and all that. But yet it's, but yet like, it's not quite an i an iPhone, obviously, if the kid, if the parents don't want the kid, you know, communicating via everything possible and, yeah, it, and, the I, and it's, it's not on the iPad's price range. Yeah. I think it's. I think you're a hundred percent correct that it, it is a kid move. Like they're they're targeted one hundred percent to kids. Uh, some people were saying they're targeted to the privacy hawks. Uh, I heard that term being thrown around. Like people that don't want to be on the mobile network, that don't want to be tracked through mobile networks at all. Like they don't even want the ability for a, a something to be track trackable, which an iPad would be. Now I think that market is like zero i don't think there's many people in that market i think there's some like probably you know handfuls here and there but that's not 100 percent not who apple's targeting they're targeting kids they're targeting the like uh, yeah i think it's only kids they should just have kid-friendly marketing and that's it and have like a lot of kid-friendly features in the ipad or in the uh ipod touches because i don't see anything else where it would needed i can go out there and buy a hundred dollar phone that can play that can do apps and stuff and just 
put it on airplane mode if I had, you know, if I had to give something to a kid. That's what I would rather do probably. But some people just want the i, i iOS interface or whatever. But yeah, like it's it's a it's a weird place that they're in. They're in this, they're in a transitionary period for sure. They are, I think they are backtracking a little bit on their craziness of like let's remove all the ports immediately like immediately like today let's say no more no more lightning port no more usb-c you're you're charging i think they're backtracking a slight tiny bit i think that's still their plan they will be removing all the ports at some point down the line but it's just not there yet and they're realizing it so they're 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 kind of realizing their mistakes they're in that phase of their life cycle and they're doing stuff for the pros which they weren't doing for a very long time which is not like Apple. Like usually they're like, oh, this iMac that we gave you, that's good enough for you and you don't need to upgrade it ever. Because this thing, this this Mac Pro, I forgot to mention, you can plug in any graphics card that supported my Mac OS into it. You don't have to buy their proprietary graphics cards, which is a shock to me. You can go out there and buy a consumer, you know, AMD graphics card or whatever uh, NVIDIA graphics card is supported by Mac OS. Still, I don't think all the new ones are, but they might be eventually. So that was weird to me. You can go out there and buy your own RAM. Like you don't need to buy proprietary Apple RAM. People thought that when they do the Mac Pro, it'll be only in modules. I think that's like probably your thought process with it as well, Matt, because you you think that Apple should be a lockdown ecosystem, but like it's not. It is, they do sell modules. Don't get me wrong. These graphics cards that they sell are modular based graphics cards that are proprietary to Macs. You can't buy a Mac module and put it into your PC. Because they use a very proprietary Thunderbolt 3 double PCI slot, which is beneficial in very, very limited circumstances. Like 99.9% of people will never see the difference. But those like those people that do this kind of rendering with this kind of thing, with this kind of thing, will see a huge difference or something. I don't know. But regardless, they do have their own proprietary thing. But they did say you can put in your own graphics card. So three years down the line, you can keep upgrading that Mac Pro. You but do you, need to, do you need to upgrade it with with another Mac module from that? That's year? what I'm saying. You don't. You don't. You don't even need to buy the Mac module. No, so it, it'll can... come. It'll come with a Mac module. Yes, like a Mac, a Mac version of that GPU. Yeah, and you can buy a Mac module if you want. Right. You, but you you can go out to Canada Computers and buy a graphics card and just plug it in. That's that that is actually surprising. If I'm honest. Yes, that's what I'm saying. That 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 is the, that was a surprising bit to me. Um, I didn't think they'd do that, but they did. They did also say that this Mac Pro that they released, like they're not going to be redesigning that for a very long time. They didn't say a specific amount of time, but the last, the last one was 2013. The last redesign of it, the trash can that everyone hated. So you can assume that it's going to be at least what, like six, seven years before they do another Mac Pro design. So they'll just be, you know, incremental, incrementally updating the specs, releasing more modules, stuff like that. Well, it, what, I, what's I like interesting that. is like, are the are the studios ready for it? Because if if it's six grand each just to start out, you know, five I think it's five thousand nine hundred and ninety nine is what they said on the stage. It's like if it's if that's the starting price and you're a studio, you know, chances are you're going to want to upgrade it. But let's just hypothetically say, let's just be conservative and say that you want it to be six grand. Are you going to be ready already? Like, are you like if they already have Mac Pros? Let's say they bought the last one that looks like the one this new one. So the last one that wasn't a, that was not a trash can. Are they ready already? Because businesses don't like to upgrade, but do studios? Like I think that might be the that might be a question as well. Because depending yeah. on how well these sell at this price point, we might not see many Mac modules, and maybe we won't see many refreshes even. 
Like, what if we I, what if we stick with this processor for five years? I don't know. I, I I think we won't. I don't think we will. I think we will see refreshes, and I think it will sell like to the point where that Apple expects it to sell. Like Apple very clearly is stating it's not for consumers, so they're not expecting iPhone level sales here. Well, yeah, um, of course. But but I I just don't see why a you know multi million dollar film production company that creates you know rent renders in in After Effects render like you know d- does Mac OS based rendering or Mac OS based design work. I can't see them not buying one of these almost immediately. Because they're talking, like, we're talking companies that, you know, sign million dollar, like, multi-million dollar projects, and time is extremely associated to money for them. Right. So a $40,000 investment in a machine that saves them X amount of time in the end. Like, Apple has done this calculation. You know that they've done this calculation. They know the average amount that these companies make, and they know the average amount that these companies are willing to pay where they think it's a, a, a good enough deal to upgrade. So I I don't I don't doubt I don't doubt in my mind that with the performance increase that we are getting and it's going to be a significant one like you know over double over triple performance increase in in, it's a in bump. some cases a real big bump yeah in, in some cases like over ten times over twenty times like it's it's going to be a huge performance increase with these graphics cards especially um, I don't see any company that you know is willing it already is running these kinds of machines being like no we're not we're not upgrading like. We're not going to take this 500% performance increase where we can, you know, instead of pumping out one movie in this amount of time, we can pump out seven movies. It, it just, it, it makes logical sense. I, it surprised me that Apple didn't do it sooner, but maybe, maybe they were doing that calculation every year. And this is finally the year that they're like, okay, now is the time that we can release this where like enough people will upgrade. You know what I mean? So maybe they were thinking like you're thinking. Where yeah, and where it's like it's like the the businesses now need it because 4K. Well, that's actually a thing. 4K is a thing. You know, exactly. back back then there wasn't. Now it's sort of like hitting the mainstream. People like consumers are getting 4K TVs. So now it's like these these larger studios and even like let's say mid ones. You know, they're not just doing 1080P anymore. They're doing 4K yep. or higher. You know, 8K, 8K, whatever. And 8K I'm sure they have bigger now. ones even probably. Mm-hmm. I bet you they've always had bigger ones. But the fact yep. that they need to now render, I would assume. And I'm not working one of these places, but I would assume they need to render more 4K content. You know, that's a lot of like CPU, a lot of GPU, whatever. And so like they don't want to wait and they're probably doing batch. Like they probably have a rent. They're probably going to buy two, one to edit on and one to render with. And they're probably going to render, you know, a batch like, oh, we need, you know, the DVD version. We need the Blu-ray version, a Blu-ray 4K version. We need the digital version, you know, whatever. Like a lot of these are going to sit in server farms, in my opinion, as well just doing rendering like people would just pass off rendering to them um that's probably what they're going to be mostly used for and that's probably where mac is or apple is going to make most of their money is just people buying these four massive server farms and then renting out that render space so like it's there's a lot of possibilities um i don't want to go too far too more into it just because it's not it's not directly related to web development like like i said when when i started talking about this no i don't think i would ever recommend any web developer to go out there and spend this much money on a mac pro because we don't need it. Like, I I I can't, I can't even recommend people spend money on like the regular MacBooks. Go buy an older MacBook, uh, because it, it's just too much money and there's just too many problems stuff like that. It's just, it's not really for us. But I think that there is some movement in Apple's industry that is interesting to us web developers, and that's why I wanted to bring it up a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think I think with, with that being said, that's that's kind of 
it's probably enough talk about Apple <laughs> for, for a little while. I think, I think I'm going to commit to at least three episodes without talking about Apple. Well, the thing is, too, is we're not exactly complaining. We're just doing the current events. And it is Absolutely. related in, 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 the, in the extent of people who work in firms, if, they're doing a mar- if they work in a marketing firm, which is certainly not out of the realm of possibility for a web developer, you may, they may have a couple of these show up in the office into the people who make the rendering or do, do the rendering for the videos, do the rendering and the editing for the videos that go Maybe. on websites, right? Because those, those videos could go elsewhere. So I'm sure that some, some people that our web developers will see some of these or see some of the videos that come from them, you know, certainly. So it is definitely related in that way. Uh, but yeah, this is going to be a long freaking episode. I'm going to tell you that <laughs> yeah. much. Um, this is, we are talking for about, I'm going to say on average about 30 minutes here. Cause my ticker disappeared. So about two, about 30 minutes here. And then we had a long interview. So, uh, I think we're going to wrap it up if that's all right with you. Um, yep. and I lost my show notes as well. So that's good. Uh, there it is. So, yeah, so we're going to run the old conclusion here. Uh, so thank you for listening and make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on the platform of your choice. Uh, you can follow us on the socials via at HTML, all the things that's on Facebook and Instagram. You can also find us at HTML, everything, which is on Twitter. Uh, we're on medium and we're on GitHub and we're also on Patreon and that's patreoncom slash HTML, all the things check out the tiers and give that a go. And with that being said, many thanks to our $3 tier patrons, which are Sean from RabbitWorks JavaScript. He's from youtube.com slash rabbitworks javascript. Again, works is spelled W-E-R-K-S. We also have Garrick from Local Path Computing and Website Design. You can find him at localpathcomputing.com. And you can also find Craig, or AKA, or also many thanks rather to Craig, AKA Cosworth, for also purchasing the $3 tier. And thanks, guys. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, a couple new ones this week. So thank you very much, of course. And thank you to uh, anyone who stuck around for all this time. And uh, feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on. And we are signing off. Yeah.